Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, first to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, If you can put a finger in Luke 24, that will be our main passage this morning. Uh, Luke, uh, but we're going to start by just reading the first three verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Going to be finishing our study of the book of Luke today, sort of. I'm gonna plan. I'm gonna be in Gig Harbor next week, but when I get back, uh, plan to do a few kind of themes of Luke type um, sermons as we look back at some of the things we've seen, kind of look at them uh, uh, as themes that have trailed their way all the way through Luke and try to put the pieces together. Um, but this morning we get to read the the last section um, of this wonderful book that we've been studying for about two years now. But to get us kind of ready, I'd like to read uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God is eternal and it abides forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And now, if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 885. Uh, We're going to today look at a a rather large section, but we're going to look at it in small chunks. Luke chapter 24, uh, the whole passage is 13 through 53, but we're going to start uh, in the middle uh, with verses 36 and 37, just to get started. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 and 37. This is the day of the resurrection. Later that day, uh, the disciples, the apostles, the 11 apostles are in uh, Jerusalem. And we pick up with these words. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Uh, That ends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us ask his blessing uh, as we open it up together. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within your scriptures. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word. You would open our eyes and you would open our hearts to behold the king of glory. And that you would give us the faith that we need to receive all that we hear in your word. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Uh, There's a question you could ask if you wanted to know uh, what church or tradition somebody comes from. Uh, And if you want to kind of figure that out, you could ask them this question. What do you think is the most important part of the worship service? And the way they answer that question will probably tell you 
uh, what kind of church they go to, what kind of tradition they're a part of. Now, people like us, Reformed folks or Puritans, intellectuals, uh, we tend to answer this question with, well, the sermon. The sermon's the most important part. And you see this the way we talk about Sunday and what happens there. Somebody says, how is church? And what's the typical response? Well, the sermon was, well, I'll let you fill in the blank. Uh, But we also see that when we uh, get together and pray. Churches like ours tend to, before the worship service, pray that the Lord would use the sermon mightily in in the hearts and minds of those who have come. So we tend to see everything moving towards the sermon or reflecting back on the sermon. That's what people like us tend to do. See the sermon as the climax of the worship service. Now there are people from a more uh, mystical uh, background or tradition. Certain ones like Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism might say that it's actually the Lord's Supper that is the most important part of the worship service. Uh, Because it's there that that they see themselves coming into some sort of mystical union and connection with the Savior. And so often, uh, the sermon might seem incidental. It's often short and sometimes in a completely different language. Uh, Because what matters is that meal. Everything is moving towards that meal. Uh, There are uh, some uh, evangelicals of a more mystical bent that might answer that it's really the singing that's the most important part of the worship service. Still looking for an experience, they root it not in the supper, but in the music and the singing. In fact, there are many who would refer to only the singing as the worship. They would say, oh, the worship was great. And what they mean is the singing as if everything else that takes place in the service isn't worship. So who's right? What is uh, the most important part of the worship service? Well, our passage this morning helps us to address that. And the answer it gives might surprise us a little. In some ways, the book of Luke has has come to a close. Jesus has been crucified. He has been buried. He has risen again. And and it would be easy at this point to think that the story is over. What more could possibly be added? But before Jesus can leave, before he can ascend back into heaven, he needs to prepare his disciples for his departure And as he does, he wants to set a pattern for his church to follow in his absence. In in a sense, what's what's taking place here is very similar uh, to Israel in the wilderness after they left Egypt. Isaac, you should preach on Exodus and like cover this. This would be fantastic. Uh, but we see it in, in Pastor Isaac's study of Exodus, right? Uh, between uh, them, them leaving Egypt after the Passover and the Exodus and taking possession of the promised land, four decades pass. Forty years And during that time in the wilderness, God gave his people three things to carry them through. His presence, seen in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that went with them. Uh, His word, through his prophet Moses, uh, 
that, that he would teach them who God is and what God requires. But as, as we read in, in Deuteronomy 8, he also gave them manna, that bread from heaven, which was meant to enable them to recognize God in his word as the one who gives life. And what we're going to see today is that God has done something very similar, is doing, is probably a better uh, way to say it, is doing something very similar for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at Jesus' final act with his disciples, which was to promise the continued, uh, his continued presence with them through his Holy Spirit. Uh, and then he explains the scriptures and he shares a meal with them. Uh, that's verses 36 through 53. We're going to start there at the end. And then we're going to come back to verses 13 through 35 and see that what he does with his apostles is, a, is identical to what he does with just a few disciples on the road to Emmaus and and he follows that pattern and actually sets the pattern for worship and so at the end I just want to have some final reflections on how we continue to follow the pattern that we find in our passage every Sunday as God's people that's our plan this morning my hope is as we do that what we're going to see is that every week the Lord meets with us by his Holy Spirit and he ministers to us through preaching and through the Lord's Supper. That's really what I want to look at this morning. Like I said, I want to start with the last portion of our passage where Jesus meets with the 11 remaining apostles. Judas uh, is not with them. Uh, And then after we see that, we'll look at his ascension. And, And I want to start with that final passage because I think it sheds light on what happens in the preceding section on the Emmaus Road. And what we're going to see in this final, these final verses, 36 through 53, is that Jesus' final act with his disciples before ascending into heaven was to explain the scriptures and to share a meal. That's, that's what he finally does before he ascends into heaven. He explains the scriptures and he shares a meal. It was still Sunday. It was the same Sunday as uh, the resurrection. In fact, it's really interesting In the four Gospels, in the book of Acts, the only records we have of Jesus meeting with his disciples after the resurrection takes place on Sundays. Uh, I think there's a reason for that. uh, Because he still meets with us on Sundays. He's setting that pattern. Uh, and, And we find the disciples discussing Jesus' death as well as the rumors of his resurrection in verse 36. And then suddenly Jesus is standing there in their midst. But even with him standing there, the disciples still struggle to believe that it's him. They think they're seeing a spirit or a ghost. Now, before we get to how he convinced them that he wasn't a ghost, I want to look at what he had to say to them about his death and his resurrection. So let me read verses 44 through 46. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So last week we saw that the angels uh, chastised, even rebuked the women for being surprised about the death and the resurrection. After all, uh, Jesus had told them 
that he was going to be handed over, betrayed, and uh, put to death, and that he would rise on the third day. Now, Jesus says the same thing here to the apostles, but he doesn't stop there. He says that it wasn't just him who warned them and told them what to expect. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they all testified to the same thing, that that the Messiah would be betrayed, put to death, and rise on the third day. This isn't some incidental message of Scripture hidden somewhere in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, pick up the Old Testament anywhere. Read Moses, read the prophets, read the Psalms. And this is the message that you will see. From start to finish, this is what the Bible is about. But that's not what convinced his disciples. Let's go back and read verses 40 through 43. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus' disciples didn't truly believe until Jesus offered them a chance to touch him and then shared a meal with them. It's as if he says, ghosts don't eat, let's have dinner. In other words, it was when his disciples experienced the opportunity to touch and eat that they finally accepted that he wasn't a ghost, but that he had indeed risen from the dead. So let me go down to verse 47 through the end of the passage through 53. It's picking up on on having said, thus it was written. And Jesus continues, not just that, that the Messiah would be crucified and rise again on the third day, but also that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But you stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So having met with the disciples, <laughs> having comforted them with his resurrection, he raised both hands, if that sounds familiar, it's because you see it every Sunday, and he blessed them, and sent them out to tell others about all these things. Now he was done. Now he's ready to go back to heaven. But he told them that they would not be alone. He would send what the Father had promised, the Holy Spirit, who would come upon them in power and would go with them into the world. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, God would continue to be with them. This is the pattern. And this pattern helps us understand what takes place in verses 13 through 35, that famous uh, Emmaus Road passage. 
It was, and it was there on, on that road that Jesus set the pattern for worship. And so let's go back to verse 13 and read through verse 24. So that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things what that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in the, here, uh, there in these days? And he said, What things? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just funny. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But they did not. See, but him, they did not see. Okay, so it's it's earlier that same day before Jesus meets with the apostles, sometime on Sunday, and there are two disciples walking toward uh, a, a little village called Emmaus outside of Jerusalem, and these aren't uh, any of the eleven remaining apostles. Uh, these aren't the leaders. These are followers of Jesus, and like. Everyone else, they're talking about everything that has been going on. They're talking about his death. They've heard rumors of his resurrection. And suddenly, Jesus is right there in their midst. But they were unable to recognize him. And the conversation that follows is truly comical at first. Jesus asked them, so what are you guys talking about? And one of them asks, if Jesus is the only one who doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) Irony of ironies, Jesus is the only one who actually understands what's going on. But these men don't know who they're talking to. They don't believe the women about the resurrection. They think all hope has been lost When, in fact, victory has been accomplished. They're confused and we're told they're even sad. Verse 17. They've been to the tomb. They've heard the reports. They certainly would have known about Jesus' warning about what would happen in Jerusalem. The very thing that the angels rebuked the women for forgetting. But still they are unwilling or unable to accept it. So what happens? What changes? How does Jesus confront their unbelief? Let's start with verse 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary 
that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted that to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So for those on the road to Emmaus, it starts with a Bible lesson. And as with the uh, 11 apostles, Jesus opened the Old Testament scriptures to them and showed them how Moses and the prophets had all announced these things long before they happened. He interpreted, we're told, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Uh, concerning himself. That, that is an amazing statement. Again, this isn't some just incidental message of Scripture. This is the message of Scripture. From start to finish, this is what it's all about. It's like Jesus says, open a page and I'll show you. And he starts to show them and he opens up the Scriptures to them. And he he starts to show them what they have read for years but not understood. Can you imagine being there that day? This would have been the Bible study to end all Bible studies. Never wanting it to end. When I teach, you all look at your watches. You would have been here saying, no, a little bit more. Can we just go to the next page? Can we we hear some more? Can we hear some more? And their hearts burned within them as he spoke. And they clearly saw that this was the only way they should have ever understood the scriptures. God had made it so clear this is what had to happen to the Messiah. The scriptures were all about suffering and the glory that follows. Always in that order. It could have been no other way. But even then they still didn't recognize who it was who was speaking to them. Something more was needed. Verses 28 through 35, let me read it. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It wasn't until he sat down and broke bread with them that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Breaking bread is, is, is how the Bible regularly refers to the Lord's Supper. And while their hearts burned from his explanation of the scriptures, it was at the Lord's Supper that their eyes were opened. And they saw who he was. 
Now perhaps this doesn't hit our, our, our reformed ears well. Perhaps it sounds a little too mystical. Maybe it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, and that's probably why Luke goes ahead and tells us twice in verses 31 and 35, so that we can't too easily read over it and ignore it. But the reality is it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. The Bible is filled with God using a meal to write the truths of his word on the hearts of his people, for better or for worse. For 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God fed his people manna. And as they prepared to enter the promised land, he told them why. It was to make them know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The bread was joined to the word to convince the heart. The word spoke, the bread confirmed and convinced. And the two were inseparable. And the same is true with the Lord's Supper. The Bible tells us that it's an actual participation in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.16 That doesn't mean that the bread and the wine are magical. It means that God takes them seriously for better or for worse. It's for that reason that those who, who took the Lord's Supper in arrogance... And presumption, we're told, ate and drank judgment unto themselves. And likewise, those who eat in humility and dependence meet God and His grace in the meal. You see, the mystics want to separate the supper from the Word and misuse it, treat it like a talisman that wards off evil. Intellectuals want to dismiss the importance of the supper because they can reduce humans down to sort of embodied brains and all that matters is what we hear and believe and God says, you're both wrong. You are a human. You are body and soul. And God speaks to us in his word and he meets us. In his supper. It's in the Lord's Supper that he takes the wonderful truth that we hear in his word and he convinces us that Jesus is not just some story, but that he is flesh and blood and walked among us. It's in the supper that our eyes are opened and we recognize our Savior in a whole new way. We, we actually participate in his death and in his resurrection in a real and tangible way that we do not fully understand. It was after the meal that the two disciples headed back to Jerusalem to tell them all that had happened. They didn't stay huddled at the table, but they went forth telling others, just as Jesus would later commission the apostles to do. And that's the proper response to receiving and experiencing the, the life-giving mercy of Jesus. To go forth and tell others. Before we close, I, I want to point out that this is the same pattern we follow every Sunday. What we saw with the apostles and with the two on the road to Emmaus It's more than just some point of historical interest for us. 
Jesus repeats this pattern twice with his people between the resurrection and the ascension. Once with the leaders and once with those who weren't in leadership to show us that this is how all of his people meet with him between the resurrection and the last day. Every Sunday, we meet with the risen Lord. Not in his physical presence, but but by his Holy Spirit that the Father promised to send after the Son ascended into heaven. But make no mistake, through his Spirit, Jesus is in our midst. And he comes, like he did in our passage, to address our fears, our worries, our doubts, our concerns. And he addresses those fears and worries through his scriptures because the scriptures testify to who he is and what he has done. That he is the all-powerful God who, who loves what is good and hates what is evil. And that he loves his people enough to come and to save them from slavery to sin and to conquer all their enemies. The scriptures testify that he knows all of our guilt all of our shame, all of our fears, all of our doubts, our weaknesses, and our failures. And yet he still says, come to me. And in love, he promises eternal life to all who would give up their strivings and come to him. And so it doesn't matter where we open the scriptures. I can preach from John or Job, Romans or Ruth, Ephesians or Ecclesiastes. I can keep going, Galatians or Genesis. You get the point. The message is the same. The message is about a God who must become man and suffer rise again and enter into his glory. And when we hear that message, our hearts burn within us. But then we learn to recognize our Savior in a unique way when we break bread. And so every Sunday we do that. We come to his table and and we learn to recognize our Savior as, as the one who took on flesh and blood and suffered death and rose in the same body on the third day. And then we depart with hands raised and a blessing pronounced. And we're sent back out into the world to tell others about the God who has loved us. That's the pattern. And we repeat it every week and we will do so until the Lord comes back to take us home. Even so we pray, don't we? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'd like to ask Dave and Pastor Isaac to come up that we might receive this wonderful gift from our God this morning. Please join me in prayer. Our merciful Savior, we we thank you for setting a pattern for us to follow. More than that, we thank you that you meet with us each and every Sunday and that you speak truth to us, that you share a meal with us and that you make us more like you. We ask that you would teach us to long to be in worship. 
You give us grateful hearts for all that we have when we gather. And that you would use it to shape us. That you would use it to help us to see Jesus for who he is. And what we want to be. We praise you. We seek you. We follow after you. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.